Hello. That was all I wanted just to get your attention. Yeah, we'll separate a little bit. Social distance. That's all it is. Good to see everyone this morning. Glad you're here. Many of you um, have gotten to, to familiarize yourself uh, with Jeff and Stanley, and some of you were able to speak with them this morning, and that's great. Uh, and, and I know many of you have been listening to, uh, to Jeff online and have been very encouraged. Uh, so glad you're here this morning, and uh, basically we want this time to be a time where you um, will have a, a time to ask some questions that maybe you've been thinking about that you would like him to address. Uh, I'm going to start us off, um, I'm going to pray in just a moment, then I'll start us off with a few questions uh, to sort of let him share uh, just some very important areas, things that he wants to express to you, uh, someone who's coming in and, and desiring to get to know you as well, he and his family. Uh, want to know us as much as we want to get to know them. So uh, that will be a good, uh, a, a good conversation as you're able to ask questions as well. Uh, let's, uh, let's pray and then we'll, we'll get started officially. Father, we thank you for your grace and mercy that is evident even in us being able to gather together this morning. Uh, it's been a good morning. It's been a good weekend. And we look forward in anticipation to what corporate worship will bring tomorrow. Father, we desire to see your glory. We desire that all is done uh, would be a revelation of that. You would continue to show us your strong arm. That you would continue to demonstrate your perfect providence in our lives and in the life of this church. Father, may we enter into this time uh, with a sense of solemnity of what you were doing, but also uh, just a sense of, of being relaxed and eager to have a conversation and to get to know one another. Father, may Jesus be exalted in this. May the fame of your name go out from this place, even because of this morning. We praise you and thank you in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, before I uh, ask Jeff a few questions to get us started, I, I just wanted to take just a, a brief moment and just to express to you as an elder who will be working very closely with Jeff, and I know Brother Jim would uh, agree, agree with me on this. Um, when you go through these processes of, of either on, on Jeff's side of coming to a church or on a congregation side of bringing someone in, uh, sometimes that's a scary thing and sometimes some of the experiences aren't always the best. But I wanted to express to you, and you'll, and you'll hear this throughout the morning, how incredible this experience has been. And you've heard the committee uh, share some of that with you, uh, just the evidence of God's grace in his hand and moving things along as he has. Uh, but. As an elder, with Jeff coming in, I want to express to you how excited and deeply confident I am that God is bringing him here. Uh, I first had interaction with Jeff on a Zoom call uh, that was a very long, I don't know, brother was like over two hours, I think, mm -hmm. an interview that we did with Chris Croft and Justin. And so this was my first sort of introduction into who he was, uh, other than just sort of you know, doing my own research online and looking at some things. Uh, but it was evident to me very quickly, and those guys who were with me and in the committee who I think subsequently watched that uh, video of that, that I got very excited very quickly. Um, this is a guy who um, I fell in love with deeply as a brother in Christ very quickly. There is a camaraderie there, uh, both theologically and, and methodologically and practically and pastorally, that excited me. Um, 
and I'm excited to work and serve with him to continue serving Fisherville Baptist Church. So, just wanted you guys to know that um, this is a this is an exciting time for me that he's coming, and uh, that's a good good thing from my perspective. Um, all right, brother Jeff, um, just to get us started, uh, would like for you to share a little bit. You know. Your testimony, call to ministry, those types of things. But as a, as a part of that, uh, one of the big questions that can come up uh, in a situation like this is, is why you're leaving Arkansas, why you're leaving the church you're at. And uh, we've had good experiences, even from, from Brian leaving, because a lot of times it, it's not always a, under the best of circumstances. But I want you to be able to share with the congregation just how incredible this has been for you and your family and what God has done in sort of rounding out and closing up that chapter and bringing you here. Okay, yeah, we'll go testimony, call to ministry, transition. Is that cool? <laughs> okay, we'll go that order. Um, I grew up in a, a Christian home with faithful Christian parents. Uh, I grew up going to a missionary Baptist church um, in Arkansas, and I think my parents said they took me to church the first time when I was six days old. Uh, my grandfather was a deacon there. My great-grandfather was a founding member of the church. They literally nailed the boards together. And so I don't remember a time when I wasn't hearing the gospel um, or being around uh, God's word and, and being taught that the Bible was God's word, that it was true. Um, so I, I, I've grown up around the faith. Uh, around age 10, I, I, around age 10, my mom could probably tell you the exact uh, time frame. There was a child in our neighborhood who uh, died in a tragic accident, and I remember asking my parents what would, um, what would happen to me if I, if I were to die. And so they you know, asked me, do you know that you're a sinner? And I said yes, and they, we walked through the elements of the gospel, and, and there in the kitchen on 15 Oak Forest Loop in Maumelle, Arkansas, um, I believe the Lord saved me and granted me repentance and faith. And, um, was baptized at the church down the road. Our church was so small, we didn't have a baptistry, so we had to borrow another church's facility to have baptisms. Uh, and so I believe the Lord saved me around that time and uh, then just continued to grow. Um, in late high school, early college, I began to really try to take seriously what it meant to be a Christian who believed the Bible. I mean, if, um, if I'm, I remember very clearly thinking, if I'm, gonna, if I'm going to profess to be a Christian, and seek to follow the Lord, then I have to build my life upon what His Word says. It, it, it was clear there was no way to practice Christianity apart from a real deep interaction with the Scriptures. And so I began to read the Bible um, pretty consistently and deeply on my own through college. Um, around that time, I started dating my wife and um, her, her father. Uh, so now my father-in-law was a huge influence in my life to... Um, take in God's word regularly and to grow. And so that was a huge aspect. Um, in college, I met a group of guys and I was, went to Bible study at their house, you know, typical college Bible study. And one of them, his uh, sister and her husband lived in Burkina Faso, West Africa, where they were missionaries. And one night at Bible study, his name was Daniel. One night at Bible study, Daniel said, hey, I'm going to West Africa this summer. Do you want to go? And I was 20 years old and West Africa sounded cool. So I was like, yeah, let's go. <laughs> My parents were like, you're going where? Um, so we packed up and we went to West Africa for two weeks. And while I was there, um, the missionaries, uh, their names were Jeff and Kim. 
uh, Jeff said, you know, we don't do missions tourism over here, so you, you're going to do something on this trip, and we want you to, 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 to preach a sermon, to teach a Bible lesson at this village. And I was like, man, I've never done that before. You're crazy. He's like, I'll help you. Um, so we worked on a lesson from the book of Jonah because this particular village that we were going to out in the bush had heard the gospel uh, numerous times and they had kept telling the missionaries like, we'll respond next time, we'll respond next time. And so they wanted uh, a lesson from the book of Jonah about the urgency of following God's word. And so I preached my first sermon there in, uh, in Burkina Faso about an hour outside of a little village called Diabugu. Um, and they, I used to have the VHS tape, but nobody has stuff that can play VHS tapes anymore. Uh, this, was in, this was in 2001. And so I, I preached a, a sermon. I taught a, taught a Bible lesson. It, it was not a, a sermon. Uh, teached a Bible lesson, uh, taught a Bible lesson there. And later that day, we were back in the village. And uh, Jeff and I not only shared a name, we also shared a love for basketball. So we were down in the village playing basketball. And Jeff said, um, what are you doing with your life? I don't know. I'm just in Africa. I don't know. Um, and he said, Kim thinks that you're going to, Kim thinks you're going to be uh, a preacher. And I just laughed. I was like, man, that's, that, that's crazy. And he said, I don't want to freak you out, but she's, you know, she's done that a few times with people where she's thought like, this is what they're going to do with their life. And she, he said, so maybe you should think about it. And so I thought about it and prayed and interacted with some people who knew me and began to seek opportunities to continue to teach the scriptures. And there was just continued confirmation of this is what the Lord's uh, gifted you to do and made you to do. So uh, we went to seminary in 2006. And during our time at Clifton, just continued confirmation from the elders and the membership there saying, we see the Lord's uh, calling on your life and gifting on your life to teach the Bible. And uh, so that's what uh, that's what we did. That's how we got uh, that was that call to ministry that, that was uh, revealed subjectively in my own heart at first and then confirmed objectively by, the, by God's people over the course of experience in the church. And so um, there's few things that I know more. Uh, I know my wife loves me, and I know that Jesus died for me, and I know that the Lord wants me to teach and preach the Bible. Um, so those are core convictions in my life. Why are we leaving Little Rock, a church that we planted? That's a great question. Um, we're not running from anything, and we're not leaving. Um, we're not leaving an unhealthy situation. By God's grace, we've we have we planted the church ten years ago, and we planted it upon two kind of bedrock convictions. One was expositional preaching, and one was biblical leadership through a plurality of elders. And so we have given our lives to those things for the last decade. And so as I'm transitioning out. Midtown is in a hopeful future. There's a plurality of elders who are godly, qualified men who are able to teach and able to shepherd. And there's a committed church that is ready to stand firm on the scriptures. And there'll be some things that change transitionally for them. But I'm hopeful for their future. My family, whenever you plant something fresh, start a church, start a business. I grew up in a small business family. You know you're going to overspend your resources on the front end for, you know, you're going to have a certain amount of financial resources, personal resources, and you know you're going to overspend those for a while to try to get the, the, the entity, the organization off the ground. And we had just reached the point to where we, we could no longer overspend at, at Midtown, um, that the next season of the church's life was going to be, was going to require perhaps maybe a little bit different uh, gifting than what uh, we were able to give at that time. And 
Um, so I've been forthright with the elders at Midtown. They've known about this process from the very beginning. Um, and I talked to one of them just a couple of days ago, and he said, I have no doubt in my mind that you're doing the right thing and that the Lord's leading you. So we're leaving a situation in a healthy way, and we're leaving our congregation in Little Rock, I trust, in a way that is uh, set up and established for a continued um, faithful existence into the future. That'll look different, but uh, I'm hopeful for them. And so I hope that helps. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, and I that's refreshing to hear because so, so often we hear either departures and, you know, pastors coming in. And the stories just always aren't great. Great. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so and I, I think it's what we've experienced both with Brian leaving and you coming are evidences of God's grace and all of this being a good thing. Yeah. And I think it gives us great confidence in, in what is transpiring. Yeah. Uh, that we're on right footing. Yeah. So that's good. Thank you so much. Um, the next sort of category, if we want to call it that, of a question I wanted to get to you was, you know, there's a balance in life between ministry and family life for a pastor that's mm -hmm. sometimes a hard balance to keep. And, um, so I just wanted you to share with uh, us, you know, how you, how you strike that balance, how you minister to your family, but also how you sort of protect and treasure your time with them. Um, so it just, just shows us how those priorities fall in line for you, so we know that you're not only pouring yourself into Fisherville, but pouring yourself into your family as well. Yeah, that's a great question. Laura and I have been married for 18 years. We have two sons. Sam will be 13 next week, and Owen is 10. And uh, they are my first responsibility in life and ministry. Um, so my, I, whatever role I have at Fisherville, I'm, I want to give my best effort to that, but I also want to make sure that my family's not just getting the leftovers, right? Because if I can't shepherd my own family, I have no business trying to shepherd the flock of God. Um, Howard Hendricks, who was a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, used to tell guys, if you're not leading your family, don't try to lead the church, don't expand the confusion. Um, <laughs> so it's my first, it's my first mission field. Um, Laura is uh, my wife and my best friend. We've known one another since the seventh grade. Uh, there's no one's counsel that I trust more than hers, and there's no one that loves Jesus that I know more than she does and treasures the gospel. So I prioritize that time with her and um, trying to make sure that we don't have too many evenings during the week where I'm also out of the house. Um, those times are important for me to be able to prioritize with her. I do all the things that you're supposed to do to have a healthy work-life balance, right? You know, uh, it, for a pastor, it take at least one day a week off, completely off, you know, where your device is off and you're done with ministry things. And you're not like quasi off, you know, uh, but you're really taking time off. Um, be careful with the amount of time I spend interacting, you know, electronically, email, text message. Make sure you have a cutoff point each day. I try to do all those best practices for, for, for family health. The main thing we do, though, is um, we just consistently have uh, family devotions together after dinner. Uh, this is what I witnessed in Laura's family. When I started dating her, I came over to dinner that first time, and they got done eating, and I was getting ready to get up from the table, and Laura's dad got the Bible out, and I was like, what is about to happen? Uh, and, and dad, he just read a passage of the Bible, and sometimes he would ask questions about that passage of the Bible. Sometimes he would just read it, and then... Uh, they would pray together. 
Um, and so we have carried that on in our family. We, after, after every meal, um, mealtime's important. After every meal, uh, we open God's Word. We read through books of the Bible. Sometimes I ask questions, you know, 13 and 10. Sometimes they're interested in more of Dad's questions. And sometimes they're like, there's cookies over there. Can we be done? Um, uh, so we try to do, we do that anytime we're home, and we try to prioritize that family mealtime together. Um, so that at the end of the day, there's always a coming together of, of the family. So those are some of the, uh, some of the best practices uh, that I try to do just to care for my family spiritually and then also maintain some semblance of, of margin in an insanely connected world. Yeah. Does that help? Absolutely, yeah. Um, it's, uh, you know, it's tough with, with the young ones doing those family devotions and that stuff had my boys on their head in the easy chair while I'm reading and you think they're not picking up anything. But they but are. They do. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah, the key um, is just to do it, right? Yeah, just to do that. Yeah, just, just to keep doing aim it. small, miss small. So don't try to make it this big elaborate thing. Right. You know, when I was in seminary, I was like, man, we're going to read John Owen and we're going to do catechism. No, you're not. <laughs> no, you're not. Yeah. 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 You're going to read a few verses right. and yeah. you're going to say, what do you think Paul meant? And they're going to be like, uh... <laughs> And you just keep doing it. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah, thank you. It's, it's good just to see a picture because it is important. It's important to the congregation to know that that is your first priority. Uh, I mean, we see you here in this context and will for the time that you're here. And we're going, that's a long time. It's, uh, but we want to know that what's happening at home <clears throat> is something that is uh, growing your family, that you're hmm. putting priority into that. It's yeah, that's good. You say that. Um, the other thing I wanted to ask you about was, uh, and this is a broad one, so you sort of distill it down as you see fit, but it, it, the broader category would be philosophy of ministry. But I wanted to be practical with that because your philosophy of ministry will drive what your week and your days look like. So uh, I just thought it would be interesting for people to sort of hear you describe what your typical week, now coming here, you, it may look a little different than it did in Arkansas. Sure. In your context there, but... What does a typical day uh, in, in pastoral ministry for you look like? And, and maybe what a typical week looks like. Yep. So how does study come into that? How does um, visiting and doing those types of things? And then um, after that, well, go ahead and answer that first. I'll, we'll add on. Okay. You're done. Cool. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, philosophy of ministry in short is that God always makes and shapes his people by his word. Um, from Genesis to Revelation, all throughout redemptive history, the way God makes his people and then shapes him shapes them and uses them is through his word so my conviction is that the ministry of a church ought to be word driven we have to get the word of god into every level of the church's life from the pulpit down to the nursery and because it's through god's word that god acts right his speaking is his doing and so when we unfold his word in whatever context we find ourselves that's where the holy spirit and the Word are working together to demonstrate God's grace and power and goodness in the life of the church. So my philosophy of ministry is um, unleash the Word of God and kind of get out of the way uh, and, let, and let God's Word work, which is why I've been so encouraged about the process with Fisherville because I'm not saying anything new when I come here with that philosophy. That's the kind of church that y'all have been growing as for a while now, and so I'm, I'm thankful for that. A typical week for me, um, I'm, not a, I'm, I'm not a super morning person, but I'll be up early. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll be up early-ish for me, and um, 
do my own personal devotions in the scriptures. Sermon prep is not soul care for a pastor. And it's one warning sign that your, your ministry is probably running on fumes if you're trying to do soul care through your sermon prep. Now, your soul ought to be getting cared for through your sermon prep, but it can't be the primary place that you're nourishing the life of the soul, right? So I'll be up relative early for me <laughs> and be in God's Word, just systematically reading through God's Word. I'm a nerd, and so I like pens and paper, so I write. And um, I have a spreadsheet that I use for praying because, again, if I don't, I'm disorganized. I don't pray for anything. And so the morning time until probably 9 a.m., I'm just focused on caring for my soul, getting the day started. Um, when I get to the office for a typical week now, Mondays are a big study day for me. So um, I spend all day Monday doing the just initial exegesis of the, of the passage and I print out the passage on a blank piece of paper with three inch margins and four line spacing, and I just fill it up with uh, observations and questions and all sorts of stuff and do all my work that I need to do. So Monday's big exegesis day. Tuesday, I, I take the, all of that and organize it in uh, an, an outline, an exegetical outline. Uh, Tuesday afternoon, I fill in some um, other, you know, I'll read other, other resources once I've done all my own work. I'll read some commentaries, read some stuff, and I'll fill in anything that is helpful. Um, Wednesdays, I do um, all the other things that a pastor is supposed to do. So I plan services on Wednesdays. I meet with people. Um, I coordinate with our worship leader. I check in with whatever else needs to happen. Uh, I try to have, I try to, I start from Wednesday and then work out in terms of scheduling you know, pastoral care meetings or shepherding meetings. Spend a lot of time with folks. Um, probably, yeah, I spend a lot of time with the members of our church, just hands-on, trying to make disciples. Uh, so that's on Wednesdays. Thursday, I start transitioning all of my study, all my exegetical work into a preaching outline. I, I write that on Thursday. Um, I finish it up on Friday morning, edit it, tighten it up, polish it up, and then typically by Friday lunch, I'm done. I, I'm home Friday afternoon, Friday evening, take Saturday off, wake up early-ish on Sunday. <laughs> There's a theme there. And, uh, um, yeah, man. Yeah. Uh, and, and read through my sermon Sunday morning, and then I get to church early enough to, you know, unlock all the doors, turn on the AC, put out the traffic turtles so nobody runs over our children on the, on the road, uh, make sure the nursery air conditioner's down, get the bulletin, set them out. Um, I do all those things, and then folks start arriving, and uh, we worship the Lord. Then I go home on Sunday, and I crash. That's my, so that's my typical week, and it, it all flows from... So you'll notice that Monday, first day of the week, I give myself to my most important task, which is to study the Scriptures. And so I'm failing as a pastor if I'm not giving my best effort to the study of God's Word so that Sunday is an overflow of my own heart and mind meditating on the Scriptures. So that's how my philosophy of ministry, which is the church is always made and shaped by God's Word, that's how that fleshes out practically. The early part of my week gets the best part of my best time. The early part of the week gets the most important task. Yeah. Yourself full, write yourself clear, pray yourself hot. And that's, you know, 
that's that process. And, yeah. And we see it that way. Um, and, and, and that brings me to this next point. Um, very important, and one of the non-negotiables for this church uh, is the issue of expository preaching. Mm -hmm. um, and what is, since I've been here, and I came in, you know, I've not been here that long, um, but, you know, when you're exposed to expository preaching, and, you know, we've got a lot of people that come from a lot of different contexts, um, when you're exposed to it, you find out very quickly that nothing else will do. When you don't hear it, you know it. Yep. Um, so, explain to us why you would be committed to and, and why expository preaching is the way you should preach. Yeah. Um, I've never said, don't, you know, there's no place for this, but sure. expository preaching by conviction is the way you should preach. Yeah. Um, so, could you share a little, just your perspective on that and, yep. and why you're committed to that? Yeah, it's got to be the main diet of a church's life. There may be unique seasons where you say, hey, we're going we're gonna to pause for three weeks and we're going to talk about a certain issue that we might need to address more topically. But that should be rare, uh, I think, because the main diet of a church's life is that expository, expositional preaching, starting chapter 1, verse 1 through the end of the book. So the point of the passage is the point of the message. And it should be clear to your people from the sermon structure and outline, they should be able to see that in their copy of God's Word. Right, so that there's, oh, I see why he's doing, I see why this sermon has two points or this sermon has four points because this passage has two points. Right? So you, that needs to be the connection there. So that the point of the passage is the point of the message. The, my primary reason why a church must preach expositionally is because this is how the authority of Christ is evidenced within a church. So we believe that Christ is the head of the church and his authority is worked out through elders down to the ministry of the body that's supported through the service of deacons, right? But at the head of the church is Christ. Christ is the Lord of the church. The Lord Jesus is not bodily present with us. So how does his authority over Fisherville Baptist get manifested for people to see? It's through the expositional preaching from the pulpit so that what is driving the the message that we're hearing is what the Lord Jesus has revealed in His Word, not what the pastor thinks the church needs to hear. So it's an act of humility by a preaching pastor to say, I'm going to start in chapter 1, verse 1, and I'm going to preach through the end of the book, and I don't get to pick what the, what the message is, right? The Lord Jesus is picking because this is His Word from Genesis to Revelation. He's inspired it, and, both, and He's also the point of it. And so his authority is manifested through that consecutive exposition so that the voice of Christ is setting the tone of the church through the pulpit ministry of, of the elders. Um, so it does come down to the authority of the Lord Jesus. It's not just a methodological conviction, right? It's, it's a Christological conviction uh, that churches have to be demonstrating their submission to the Lord. It's also an important practice for pastors because it's a weekly reminder to an elder, this isn't your church. It's Jesus' church. And your job is an under-shepherd. Under -shepherd. And when the chief shepherd appears, you want to get the unfading crown of glory, 1 Peter 5. And the way you do that is by giving them God's word in the way that God has revealed it with all humility. So it's, a, it's just also a weekly reminder to the pastor, you're not irreplaceable. Yeah. See what I mean? I get excited. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you, brother. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. Um, at this time, um, we've, we've got a couple of guys. I don't know where they are. I'll lift the microphone. One up front here, Chris Day. I think Steve's sweet in here morning. 
So we wanted to give you guys a chance. And we wanted to open up and, and me just ask a few things of Brother Jeff um, that would hopefully answer some questions you may have had. But I know there are other things out there that are near and dear to your heart that you may want to ask him. Um, so at this time, just raise your hand. We'll get a mic to you, and you can ask that question. Morning. I'm Jimmy Wright. It's nice to meet you. Jimmy? Welcome. Yeah. Um, you mentioned earlier in your in the uh, first comment on the introduction that at Midtown uh, there was a, a different gifting required um, that that they needed. Can you can you expand on a little bit on your giftings and the gifting that would have been required at Midtown? Yeah, our Midtown is just in entering a phase where they're gonna need essentially like almost like a second season of planting where there's going to be a lot of uh, hands-on kind of building work where the whoever's filling that like lead pastor role is going to have to wear a lot of hats and I've just reached the end of wearing the preaching pastor building maintenance custodian (laughs) office manager I've just I had reached the end of being able to wear all of those hats at the same time um, so it's, I just think it's, a, it's time for a transition for us. I think my primary gifting is to preach and teach the, the, the Bible and to make disciples. I'm a, I'm a hands-on shepherd, and uh, that's really what I want to devote the majority of my time uh, to. It's not that I can't do those things that are required at, at, at Midtown. Um, I'm just not sure that I could do them most faithfully over the long haul, which is what's going to be best for kind of the second season of, of our church's life. Churches have seasons, leaders have seasons, and I think it's pretty clear that um, the Lord was opening a door for us uh, to, to approach a new season. Does that help, Jimmy? Yes. Okay, thank you. So I've been, uh, uh, I've been blessed to kind of hear the story of how, you know, Jeff has providentially come to us um, and I think the Lord's hand of sovereignty is, is very clearly visible in that. Um, so I've been blessed by the hearing of it, and I, I just wanted you guys to be able to speak to that, you know, maybe both of you, and just how you came here, how you specifically came to us and to this church. Uh, I just think it's a very cool story of just God's providential care for Fisherville and just the connections and all that. So maybe you guys can speak to that for everybody here this morning. You, you mean just, just Jeff? You want to hear my coming here? Or? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I can. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good question. It's a good story. I do think it's providential. Um, back in uh, the spring, um, a friend of mine at Southern uh, called me and said, hey, a friend of mine who's a pastor at uh, Fisherville is going to be uh, moving on and and uh, I would love to I would love to give him uh, you know your resume if that would be okay with you and I said yeah that's of course that's okay with me I knew of Brian and I knew of his ministry and I knew there was a lot of like-mindedness between the way Brian and I thought about uh, pastoring and and trying to shepherd a church and so I I was I I didn't know about the 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 position opening and I uh, I had no idea. We weren't like on job boards. We weren't blasting resumes. 
Um, we were just kind of serving there at Midtown and really praying. And so we thought that if, we're, if we were going to move on from, from Midtown, it was going to have to be something that was providential and personal, that there was a connection there where we could have just some clear like-mindedness before we went too far down the road. It, it, it was, it ter- it's terrifying to me to think about like seeing a church on the Internet and saying, I'm going to apply to be that pastor. Like, that just sounds scary. And so a friend of mine at Southern, Jeremy uh, Pierre, called me and said, man, I would love to give your resume to, to, uh, to, to Brian so that he could leave for the search committee. A few days later, another friend of mine at Southern texted me and said, hey, could you send me your resume? I want to give it to, uh, to Brian. I don't know if you know that he's considered about leaving. So in the span of a few days, and those two friends didn't coordinate, in the span of a few days, was able to give my resume twice and uh, was able to talk with Brian and Jonathan over Zoom. And, um, you know, uh, Brian said, I think this is a good fit. Uh, uh, I think this is a good fit, but I'm not going to I'm not going to be too heavy handed in the process. So he actually just left my resume in the stack of resumes. And I think he told Brother Chris, there's there's one resume in here that I think would be a strong possibility. Um, and but, I'll you know, as you guys go through that. And so um, it was a pretty providential connection with some personal elements there so that before we even had the first conversation I I was comfortable that there was enough like-mindedness in the kind of church that Fisherville is and the kind of pastor that I think you ought to be there was enough like-mindedness that I felt comfortable even beginning some sort of process talking with brother Chris on the phone and so it's been really really encouraging um, at each step of the way yeah and that, and that was a, an encouragement Encouragement to all of us, but an encouragement to me because you know, Brian used to tell me after I got here, we just got you on loan, you're going to be gone. And I was telling Brian, I'm not looking to go anywhere. And this is the conviction it's like if, if the Lord wanted me to be a senior pastor somewhere, it's going to have to be some providential, out, you know, just crazy out of nowhere uh, situation that He places me in because I'm not hunting. And so it's, and I think it speaks to me, it speaks volumes of integrity. Even when I've had to resign from a church before, the first church I resigned from, I did it without another path. I mean, I did it and had no job the next day because I did not want to court another congregation while I was feigning being a shepherd to the one. So I love to hear this because it speaks to pastoral integrity that you say, hey, the Lord moves his hand, I'll pay attention. Yep. But until then, we'll keep plowing. Yep. Mm-hmm. It was in 2018, mm. and um, you had said that somebody had asked you when would you preach on uh, teach all of Revelation. Yeah. <laughs> and you said it will be your last sermon. <laughs> okay, how will you know when your last sermon is? So my question is, is there any chance, especially given the climate now in 2021, that you'll preach all of Revelation? I'm sure that I will at some point. Honestly, I think somebody on the committee might better speak to that issue. Anybody? 
And, and just because... I would love to. Yes. <laughs> I keep passing more time, so... There's no one. Appreciated that. 
um, to us because we knew that you had our back, so to speak, um, as we were in the process. So, um, so then in early July, we started looking at the resumes. And, and, and I will give the same testimony. Brian and Jonathan knew about, um, about Jeff and the other ones that had come in early. And they had said um, to us, we think there's a cream of the crop here, but y'all have to figure that out. So they, they did not influence us um, like that, like they could have. They chose not to. And so as we looked at those resumes, then it did become very clear to us. Um, we had a group that initially listened to sermons and then came back and said, you know, we should all listen to this guy or maybe we shouldn't all have to listen to this guy. And, um, and so very quickly, Jeff rose to the top. I mean, and we were excited because it was like, wow, God, can, God would do this for us. You know, some of us have had experiences with very long pastor churches. And so it was just um, exciting to think that he was going to gift us this way. Um, and so then the contacts were made with other pastors to say, you know, thanks for applying, but that someone said, hey, I think we should just bring in four or five guys and let them all preach and we'll pick. Not anybody on the committee, somebody in the church said that. And it got back to us and we were like, no, 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 that's not how you do it. You know, so you very quickly, you see who you think that number one candidate is and that's who you pursue. And so from the middle of July, that was definitely Jeff Reedy. And that's the direction that, that we have gone since then. And we have just seen those providential um, outworkings that the Lord has provided um, for our church. And we see it as gifts of grace. Um, and, um, and we're just, you know, we're excited. But the, the committee has com been completely unified and harmonious throughout this whole thing. And that's also been a gift of grace. Thank you so much for coming out and doing all this. My name is Charles. Charles is right. Um, I want to kind of piggyback a little bit off of Eric's question about how you handle your obligations to your family. Mm -hmm. um, even judging from your answer, talking about different people you know here, you clearly have a lot of connectedness to our little world of evangelicalism and, and a lot of connectedness to organizations here in Louisville. Sure. Um, so my question then is, could you elaborate a little bit on how you handled, how, have, how you handled those obligations, both explicit and implicit, that come with that connectedness, um, when they've interfered with your obligations to your church, or just how you've been able to manage doing all the things you do while continuing to be an asset? Yeah. I mean, it's just that... I. I think what it comes down to is knowing what your priorities are. Um, so starting with caring for my family, then shepherding the church that I'm responsible to shepherd, and then everything else is downstream from there. And I just don't have a problem saying no to things that may be good but are not essential. Um, so just to be honest, I've had a number of opportunities where I could have done more stuff that wasn't either connected to my church or connected to caring for my family, and I just say no. Um, because it doesn't fit with my core roles, right? So my core role is to care for my shepherd my family and then shepherd whatever local church that I'm responsible for, whatever margin I have left over, which is not a lot. Um, I just want to use that strategically on things that fill me up and not take away. So 
Um, I just don't have a problem saying no to things that may be good but are not essential. Um, I, I'm not interested in, well, I mean, I want to put this the best way. I'm just not interested in, in having a really, really broad kind of ministry. I'm okay if it's narrow, but I want that narrowness to have depth. So I'm just happy to go deep with caring for my family, shepherding a church I'm responsible for, and if there are a couple of other things I can be involved in, great. Yeah, that's a good question, brother. Hi, I'm Marge Cook. Hi, Marge. And we're delighted that you're here. Thank you, ma'am. Um, you, you have to fill some shoes of our beloved Brian, <laughs> and it's not going to be easy, but I'm so glad that he knew of you in advance. You know, they say they were very impartial, but I'm glad to hear that he also recommended you because. Mm -hmm. His opinion is important to me. I just have a couple of questions. Um, one is, uh, do you intend to uh, continue your education at the seminary? Mm -hmm. uh, and how do you feel about music? Because we've had, been very, very fortunate in the past to have two very gifted pastors' wives. <laughs> I don't know if your wife sings or not or anything. I feel bad if she does. She bakes. <laughs> but um, music is important to us in the church, too. Yeah. And I don't know how you feel about that. It's just, uh, yeah. it's just something special. Yeah, so absolutely. Those two things here, and, and further your education and. Mm -hmm. Yeah, those are good questions. I don't have any current plans to further my education. Um, I, I've thought about it in the past. I had a former professor ask me, do you want to do more coursework? Frankly, I don't know how, right now, how I would fit that in with the things that I'm responsible to do. So I don't have any, I don't have any plans currently to pursue any more education. Um, it would have to, if that were to ever happen, it would have to be so clearly providential that m not just me, but the other elders, my family, people in the church are like, yeah, you should probably do this. I don't have any current plans to pursue any further education. Um, I love music. I'm not musically gifted at all, but I love music. It is, um, in, in my view, it's, a, it's an integral part of how we worship the Lord. Um, it, we worship Him through His Word, primarily empowered by His Spirit. But the praise of God is so manifold. There's so much to praise God for that He's given us all these different mediums through which we praise Him. Uh, studying His Word, working at the gifts and callings that He's given us to do, and then singing, right? Singing and praise. So I love music. I think it plays an important role in the church's life. I don't have like one musical preference over another. I think a church ought to sing songs that are biblical in content and that are singable by a congregation, and we ought to sing them with all of our might. And if it's an old hymn or a new song, I don't really have a preference as long as the content's coming from the Bible and it's something that we can sing. I hear all sorts of songs that are great, but there's no way that a group of people could sing them. Um, so the, this, it should be congregational and biblical, and it should be as just as wonderfully full-throated as we can make it. So if you have the unfortunate pleasure of sitting near me on a Sunday, I will sing really loud, and it's bad. <laughs> it is bad. But hopefully I preach better than I sing. Does that help? Yes. 
Thank you. Yeah, I will make the motion that we don't do that. <laughs> Just out of love for her. Yes. Thank you, ma'am. Yeah. And Brian texted me this week a very encouraging message saying he was praying for us and for Fisherville. So, yeah. Yeah, with uh, the current, I guess, political and... Uh, of things, critical race theory is something that seems to be encroaching more and more in our society, and I was just wondering, A, what is your stance on it, and B, in the expository style, how do you address that, and then C, is there any sermons that maybe you could point me towards, as I've read quite a few of your sermons, kind of looking for a little bit of that, and I've been really impressed that you're preaching so far, but... Um, you know, just if you could speak to those three things. So A, what's your stance on it? B, how, in an expository context, how do you teach us yep. to handle that in society? And yep. that's yeah, yeah, that's great. Um, I think all critical theories, not just critical race theory, and there's a lot of critical theories, by the way. There's numerous critical theories. All critical theories are rooted in just a neo-Marxist worldview that takes uh, an attempt to that sees everything in the world in expressions of power. So there's only oppressors and oppressed, and everything is filtered through that lens. And so we have to criticize every structure, every institution, in order to undo those structures of power. Now the irony is that narrative is itself a structure of power, right? So, so all critical theories are rooted in an unchristian worldview, an, an unbiblical worldview. So. I don't think there's any room within a Christian or biblical worldview to embrace any element of any critical theory, whether it's critical race theory, critical gender, critical economic theory, like there's all sorts of them because they're fundamentally destructive, right? They're fundamentally, they see the world as disordered um, because of power and they, instead of addressing the disorder in a redemptive way, they, re they address it in a destructive way. So it's the opposite of, the, of a biblical worldview's analysis of the world. We also see the world as disordered, but it's disordered because of sin. And so the way we address that is through the redemptive power of the gospel. And we want to make things more ordered because we believe that order is God-given and good. So things like authority are good. They're not bad. Authority can be misused, but it's not fundamentally an expression of oppressor versus oppressed, right? Authority, rightly exercised, is for human good. So there's just no place within a biblical framework for any critical theory, let alone a, a critical race theory. I also think that critical theories misread history, right? It's a selective reading of, of history. So the most popular textbook on American college campuses for history is Howard Zinn's A People's History of the United States. It's a horrible book, it, not just because of its what it's advocating, but it just tells history wrongly. Um, and again, this is uh, another aspect of how critical theories work. So I just don't see any place within the church for, in, for utilizing any aspects of critical theories. I mean, just even think about the word, right? Like, it's destructive, not redemptive. Um, that being said, I'm a white man. I don't know what it's like to be a minority person in American culture, so I want to have a posture of being willing to listen, be humble. There's an African-American pastor 
three cities away from me that I often have coffee with, and I just ask him, tell me your perspective on X, Y, or Z. And I just want to listen. I don't always agree with him, but I just want to listen to what he says. And so I think we ought to, I think we ought to have a posture of humility while also recognizing that there's a line we can't cross, right? There's a line we can't cross as biblical Christians, but we want to be humble enough to listen at any point, right? And not just begin. We don't want to go down the cultural road of assuming that everyone is our enemy and, and we only uh, have all of the right answers and everyone should listen to us all the time. We do believe we have the right answers because we have God's word and it's sufficient to give us what we need, but we want to be humble in, in that. How, we go, how I go through that in ex, expository preaching, um, I'm going to preach the point of the passage as the point of the message. So what I'm primarily going to focus on is helping people cultivate the ability to think biblically. We have a, a famine of thinking in our churches where we don't stop and ask ourselves, what am I hearing? How does that compare to the straight edge of Scripture? And then how do I need to uh, take every thought captive unto the obedience of Christ as I'm, as I'm listening to this? So I'm also of the persuasion that in the church, we ought to be very, very careful of not having our preaching of the word come across as always being responded to the cultural moment du jour, right? Because then what we're doing is we're communicating to our people, the culture is actually setting the narrative and we're taking the scriptures to match the cultural's narrative. I think the church ought to come on Sunday and barring unusual situations, right? Like we, um, um, we have prayed for current events in our church. We've prayed for all of our political leaders. But the news thrives on everything being breaking news and it's not. So I think the church ought to be slow to have what's going on in the cultural moment trickle into the Lord's Day gathering. We want to we communicate to people, and even the way we do our gathering, gatherings, that we're steady, we're stable, we're confident, we're hopeful. We're not driven by despair. We're not, we're not freaking out. We're not gripped by cynicism, right? That doesn't mean we ignore what's happening in the culture, but we're primary orient, primarily oriented towards God's Word. And so we want to be clear on that. And as opportunities arise, we may address some of those things. I've never addressed critical race theory head on in a sermon. I haven't had the need to at our church. Our congregation is um, pretty biblically astute at, in, at Midtown. And I've never addressed it head on um, because there just wasn't a need to. We, we were kind of in lockstep on how to respond to that. But I don't have any issue saying pointed things when the Bible says pointed things. So if you could, I mean, if you go back and listen to some of my sermons in uh, 1 Samuel, where um, I preached through First and Second Samuel, 52 sermons through the two books. And um, when I was just going through the passages about Saul, I was very clear, like, the ends justifying the means is not a Christian form of reasoning, because right? Saul's all about the ends justifying the means, right? And um, so I would say pointed things in the course of that exposition. But again, I'm, I'm slow to let the culture set the outline for what we're talking about in the church. That's not because I don't want to talk about things. I'm happy to address anything head on. But I do think we ought to be very careful that the Bible is framing even the tone on a Sunday morning. And we're not just uh, responsive to what's happening in the world, because what's the crisis now is going to be long gone in six months, and there's going to be a new crisis. And 
uh, one of my pet peeves, this is a rabbit trail, we'll see where I'm going in a second. One of my pet peeves is churches that just change their mission statements like every year, right? And so we just, new mission statement, new mission statement. You're like, dude, just glorify God, right? There you go, mission statement, we're done. Um, let's just do that. And because when you're always changing it, you don't communicate a sense of stability, a sense of rootedness to your people. In the same way, if we're so attuned to cultural things, what our people could end up catching from us from the front is the way that I'd be a faithful Christian is just to be absolutely fired up about all the cultural stuff. And what I'm saying is, no, the way you'd be a fired up Christian is make disciples, right? Like invest in your family, care for your wife, raise your kids, serve the church. That's how we are fired up disciples. And as the Western civilization continues to crumble, whatever, wherever you are on that spectrum of how much time Western civilization has left, um, the church needs to be the entity that is going to be left standing when all the rubble hits the floor. And we're, we need to be able to stand and say, hey, everybody, come here. This is solid. This is hopeful. We're not gripped by cynicism. We're not full of despair. And even if the city of man crumbles into a thousand pieces, the city of God endures. So come and be a citizen with us. And I'm less concerned about preserving the culture or pushing back against the cultural collapse. I think that's a given. I'm just putting all my cards on the table. I think it's just a given. I think the elements of Western civilization are maybe beyond repair, perhaps. So what do we do? Be about the Great Commission. Be about the work of the Lord. Do it hopefully, joyfully, so that when things do just blah, go into rubble, we're left standing with the good news and we're not gripped by despair and cynicism and all those things. Does that help? Okay, thanks, brother. Good. Uh, I have a big, big family. I have five children. I have 12 grandkids and 11 great grandkids. And then those children and grandkids, there's about six that are black and biracial. <coughs> this is my question. I have a granddaughter that since she was six years old, she was different. And we noticed that she was different. Today, she's 33 years old. She's gay. Mm -hmm. And I'm sick, and everybody wants to come to visit. Next year, we're going to celebrate our 52 wedding anniversary, and everybody wants to be here. And I want to know how would you handle her coming to church? How would I handle her coming to church? Yes, she is gay. Yeah, I would, I would handle her coming to church like this. Welcome. Come. I want her to come. Yeah, I want her to come too. Right? The church is a hospital for sinners. Yeah? And we don't, we don't tell people... Uh, there's a very clear front door to the church. If you want to be a member of the church, right? You need to be born again by God's grace, trusting in Christ alone. But our, the, the, uh, the actual front doors of the church where we're welcoming people in to worship God, please come. Everybody goes, how come you're not Catholic? I said, if you have an hour, I'll explain to you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. 
Baptist Church, and I found what I was looking for, and I'm very happy here. Yeah. Well, amen. I mean, I would want her to come and attend one of our worship services and hear God's word and hear the gospel and pray that the Holy Spirit would grant her repentance and faith. Because if she's not welcome here, um, that's pretty much like a, a failure job one of the church's mission, right? I would hope that she would be here. That's how I feel. Yeah. Same you and God bless you. God bless you too. Yeah. Hey, Brian. Um, yeah. Hey, um, thank you. Um, you talked about, you know, the many hats that you wore at Midtown. Mm -hmm. And obviously with a smaller church and a body like that. And so how would you, one, as a two-part, how would you describe your leadership style as a person? Are you more hands-on? Are you more CEO-like? Are you, you know, kind of that leadership style in yourself? Because it sounds like coming in to turn the lights on, start the coffee pot, et cetera, that kind of thing with a little bit different body here, a little bit larger, and kind of how you see your role as, as a leader. And then you also talked about one of your passions is, is making disciples mm -hmm. and being passionate about discipleship. And so what does that look like? How did that look like at Midtown? And how do you see that transcending here at yeah. a little bit larger church body? Like yeah, that's you? a good question. Uh, leadership style. I'm definitely not hands-off, and I'm not CEO. So I'm probably somewhere in the middle. I think that people work best when we have clearly defined uh, expectations and objectives and clearly defined parameters, and then we can all just run in the areas that have been clearly defined. So I think so much of leadership happens on the front end in terms of this is where we're going, this is how we're going to get there, here's the parameters that we're going to run in, and then my job as a leader after that, I take it, is to just be an encourager and to come in on a regular basis at whatever level that regularity would look like with a staff person or a ministry team leader or Sunday school teacher and just saying, what's going well? What's not going well? How can I help you? How can I encourage you? And then be a resource to that. Um, but I think the key part for me is I want to make sure on the front end that we all know where we're running, where we're going, and then we can just run in our lanes and I can be involved in encouragement and keeping things on track but I the last thing I want to do is you know be over everybody's shoulder like have you done this that or the other that just is going to be a recipe for people to be upset and for me to be cranky and it's not going to be good so that's probably that mentality that I have some of that comes from my church experience of leading at Midtown and then some of that just comes from I grew up in a small business family my dad started a business when I was eight years old and that's how I watched him uh, lead at times, and so I just kind of learned that um, from him. Discipleship, there's no substitute for time, right? There's no substitute for time and for being hands-on. I had a very wise pastor tell me, you'll spend hundreds of hours for millimeters of growth. And that's just how it is, right? And so it's going to be inefficient, <laughs> messy, and it's going to take time. So the one of the key pastoral virtues you ought to have is just patience, right? Just be involved, and it's going to be hands-on. I'm, I'm a hands-on disciple maker, so I want to spend time with people. Um, I had, before COVID, my last full year, I had over 200 um, discipleship appointments with people in our church. That was too many. Um, that's too many. But at the other, on the other hand, like, that's what you have to do, right? Is to sit down with someone and how can I help you grow? 
Um, I was at the annual meeting of the SBC several years ago and I was talking to an older godly pastor who had planted a church and had seen it grow to a very established and he was telling me how great his elder board is. There's like 12 or 13 men on his elder board and it's just a, it's a joy for him to serve. And his name is Scott and I asked Scott, where did you find all those elders? And he's like, I didn't find them anywhere. I built them, right? Like I grew them. So I came home immediately. You can ask Laura. I came home immediately and I said, everything else this year stops and I'm going to preach and train leaders. That's it. Because if, that, if we don't do that, we're, we're not going to make it. Um, so I found three young guys at our church who had aptitude and desire. If anyone desires, aspires to the office of overseer. So I found three guys who had aptitude, desire, and what I hoped was character. And we just went hands-on for um, an intense period of time. They would come over to my house. Um, I would give them hypothetical ministry situations. I would take people's names out of membership questionnaires. You get to fill out a questionnaire to become a member at Midtown. So I would give them people's membership questionnaires and say, what would you do? How would you respond to this situation? Or I would take pastoral care situations, you know, edited for privacy and say, hey, let me know. How, how would you handle this? We read books together. Two of those three guys have served on my elder board. Um, and the third will be an elder within the next probably 18 to 24 months. Um, they're all younger than me, uh, which is pretty young. <laughs> uh, but they were fitting elders at our congregation. But the key, the key turning point for me was um, they're not just going to walk in the back door where you can plug and play. That happens sometimes, and you should praise God for that. But the other part of the time is you got to look at your church and say, who are we going to build? Who are we going to grow? And so we just take that hands-on. That's an elder example. Another example was I had two guys, and they wanted to be, they just had questions on what does it look like to be a disciple maker. And so we met regularly. Um, thank you, brother. Um, we met regularly for nine weeks, and we read through a couple of books together. And then I told them, I'm not going to meet with you anymore. You, you now, you, you become me. Go find two other guys and then pass it on from there. Um, so again, but it was just, just hands-on. I think there's some fruit in discipleship from having like a discipleship program, you know, where something can, somebody signs up for something and they come and there's a class. That's fruitful. But I don't think it's the most effective way to have a broad base of a culture of discipleship. We don't want a program of discipleship. We want a culture of discipleship where it's regular for members to be helping one another love Jesus, kill sin, and spread the gospel. Where that's just normal. Where it, it would be unusual for people to not meet another disciple-making member at our church. That makes, does that help? Okay, thanks brother. Thanks, brother. I taught 10th grade, so this is like, we're okay, yeah. It's really fun to hear your honest response to some of these questions and not, have, you know, not being prepped. Um, I grew up overseas. My parents were uh, career missionaries for the IMB, so from age 5 to 13, I lived in Panama, Central America. So I experienced firsthand the reverse culture shock of coming back to the U.S. Mm -hmm. I know it's different that your, your kids are here in the U.S. It's not a dramatic culture shock, but I, I assume one thing. I assume that you and your wife and your Talk about this, and that if you weren't comfortable, you probably wouldn't have accepted the invite to come up here and sure. all, all of that. But do you have any concerns? Um, do you and your wife have any concerns about your kids? Do you all as a couple have any concerns about the move to Louisville? 
And if you do, is there anything specific that we can be uh, praying for you all as a congregation, or anything specific that we can uh, be ready to do to help you? Yeah, that's a great question. What's your name, brother? Thank you, brother. That's a good question. Um, we don't have any abnormal concerns about our kids. Our kids are 13 and 10. Um, so my 13-year-old, like, everything is an adventure already. So she's like, yeah, let's go. I mean, let's just do it. My 10-year-old is probably a, a bit more hesitant. Um, but that's just from we're going to be moving to a new state and, you know, leaving people that we know. But we don't have any abnormal concerns. But you can pray for their little hearts that they would um, trust the Lord and be confident in God's goodness. Uh, Laura and I don't have any concerns about relocating. Um, Louisville is very much a, like a spiritual home to us. Um, in the Lord's providence, my very best friend in the world just moved from Little Rock to Louisville to do a, a New Testament PhD at Southern. And I didn't think I would ever live near him again. And I'm hopeful that we will. And uh, I have two brothers by blood that I love. But this, uh, this brother in the Lord is, is really closer to me than blood. And so I'm thrilled about being un totally unplanned, being close to that, to that brother again. They're going to come to uh, Fisherville tomorrow. So you should tell them that it's God's will that they join this church. <laughs> word from the Lord. I don't really believe in prophetic utterance. I'm just making a joke. <laughs> but that's a great question. Thank you, brother. Hi, Deb. Hi. Denise Humphrey. Denise? Yes. Yes. I belong to these two up here. I'm ah. very um, But besides expository preaching, what do you see as essential or important elements of the Sunday morning worship service? That's great. Um, I think the worship service is an expression of our submission to and dependence upon God's Word that primarily happens through the preaching from the pulpit, but it also happens in other ways. So I'll just describe for you our order of service at Midtown so you can kind of get a feel for my heart. We do all of the welcome and the announcements up front. Then we have a call to worship from God's Word. And everything that happens after that call to worship until the benediction is driven by the Scriptures. So we sing a biblically-oriented song. Between the first song and the second song, we have a scriptural declaration of God's praise where we read a passage of the Bible that is describing who God is, not just what He does for us, but who He is. And then one of our members prays in response. We don't ask God for anything in that prayer. We just praise Him. Like, You're holy, right? You're good. Then we sing another song. Then we have a corporate confession of sin where as a church body, we express our need to God for His forgiveness in the gospel. There's a time of silent prayer where people just quietly pray and express repentance to the Lord. We follow that up with a scriptural assurance of God's grace and forgiveness in Christ, where we read a passage of the Bible in a short verse. Um, we sing a song. After that, we have a public reading of God's Word. Paul told Timothy, until I come, devote yourself to the reading of God's Word. So we have a public reading of God's Word. There's typically an elder, but sometimes uh, just another brother in the church will respond to that reading with prayer. So that there's, we're now at three instances of specific prayer. My 13-year-old will say, all we do is pray in the service. <laughs> yes. 
and I want you to catch up on that, right? Then we pray in response to God's word, then we preach, then there's a song of response at the end, then we close with a benediction. So the essential elements are responding to the word of God in praise, confession, supplication, and then feasting on his word, right? Um, my favorite image of the sermon is a family meal where God's word is spread before us on the table and we just feast on it together. And then we respond with gratitude. But it's all being driven by the word of God, infused with prayer. So those are the essential elements, in, I think, in a, in a worship service so that the word of God is driving us in every sense. And we are responding to him with, with prayer, with praise, with confession, and with just humble listening. So I think some of the essential elements. Yeah, thank you, Denise. Hi. Where? Yeah, yeah. That's right. We're a rare breed. This is important. It is. Yeah. For you personally, yeah. um, but also categories of what that looks like financially. Yeah. Um, with your marriage and your ministry, um, kind of specifically what those pieces look like um, for both of you. Yeah. Um, I have a I have a really close relationship with my wife, and I I don't mean that cliched. I mean she knows what I know, and she knows what I do, and there's no secrets. She has all my codes, all my passwords, um, and I'm not tech savvy. So um, we're, my life is an open book with her. I'm very close with um, my father-in-law, my wife's dad, and have a very forthright and open relationship with him. For the last nine years, I've had a monthly conference call with three other pastors where we talk for an hour and we just, what's going on in life and ministry? And these brothers are close enough to me to, to know me, but distant enough to say uncomfortable things at times, right? And so um, that is just a regular aspect of, of, of my, my life and, and, and ministry. And um, yeah, those are probably the key ways. Anything else I could elaborate on? Okay, thanks, that's a good question. Thank you, brother. This is my uh, question. In regards to my wife's question and the gentleman's question over there, me, myself, I was, uh, I've been in the law enforcement field. And it was an oath that I took to protect and serve all groups, regardless whether they were uh, black, I mean, uh, racial, uh, identity, uh, transgender, drug addict. I was going to treat each group equally. So no favoritism. My question to you, Jeff, is how do you feel about that? How, how do you feel about those issues? Yeah, I think what you're describing is an essential aspect of law enforcement. My uncle was a was a police officer, oh. right? But I also think what you're describing there in a like downstream kind of way is the core Christian conviction that every person's made in the image of God. Right? And so we're, as, as believers, we're not just saying because things ought to be fair, you should treat every person the same. That's an adequate answer. 
But we actually say something deeper because each person bears the image of God, right? They deserve to be treated with dignity, with, with with kindness, fairness, respect. That's just essential Christian virtue, right? It's rooted in, it's rooted in Genesis chapter one, verse 27. They made, they're made in the image of God. And so I, I'm, there's no daylight between you and me on that, brother. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Hey. Right. What's your name? Dana. Dana. Right. Um, you mentioned having a plurality of others yeah. in Midtown. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering if you'd be willing to give maybe an example or two in generality for us. Um, maybe a time when you needed to make a decision um, that, that wasn't necessarily your position. Oh, yeah. To having a plurality of others, even elders that were younger than you, that yep. you kind of trained and brought up. Yep. How that works itself out. Yeah, that's a great question. Our constitution and bylaws at Midtown requires that we make decisions by at least a 75% consensus on the elder board. We never disclose what the votes are on the elder board, right? For a long season, we only had three elders, so we could only be unanimous because there's no way to make 75 out of three. Is that right? Not good at the maths. Um, and Dana, there were numerous instances on uh, just kind of everyday stuff where I would have done things differently. Like for example, one time we wanted to rearrange uh, who was in what community group. And I gave what my opinion was. The other elders had a different perspective. And so we voted on it as a board. We went with their plan, not my plan. Great, I'm fine with that. Um, I heard Mark Dever say once that every young pastor should lose a vote on his elder board as early as possible. Because it just teaches you, A, it's a real plurality of elders. It's not like a plurality of elders where you just get to do whatever you want. And then B, it just, I mean, it just teaches you that it's not the end of the world, right? Like, you're going to say, I think we, could go, we ought to do X. And they're going to say, no, brother, prayerfully, we think Y is better. Okay, you're my pastors too. So I submit to you as well. Um, so there's been numerous instances like that. There have been other instances where it was maybe like a bigger picture thing that I thought we ought, to, we ought to seriously consider, for example, adding another staff person. And it took me a few years to make that case effectively to the other elders. But I kept making it. I tried to make it respectfully and within the parameters that we had set up at the certain time of year when we're doing budgetary stuff and all those things. But I kept making that case because I really was convinced it was the best way forward for our church. Um, for multiple years, I, I didn't win that vote. <laughs> um, and so we didn't add another staff member. And that was fine. That's the Lord's wisdom. If we, be, if we believe that the Bible advocates a plurality of elders, then the decisions enacted by a plurality of elders when done with godliness, humility, patience, wisdom, are the Lord's will for that situation. And we can trust Him. Um, but I did continue to make my case. And, uh, but I tried to do so in you know, a collegial environment with the other elders. So, does that help? Yeah. Hello. Yes. 
uh, one with regards to evening service. Um, how how valuable is that in terms of in having the evening service over here? And if it is important, uh, how do we go about with the with the teaching? Uh, what the preaching is it through the books? Is it topical? Okay. Yeah, I like the idea of evening services. I'm happy to, if we come on board, to just work with the other elders as to what you're already doing and continue to shape and refine that. I probably don't know enough to say what I would do. We don't have an evening service now, but that's not a philosophical conviction. It's just a practical consideration that I would also have to lead that service and come and do all the AC things again. And... Uh, yeah, I don't want to do that again. Um, so, I, but I like the idea of an evening service. I'm I'm open to serving and leading in whatever way is is going well for Fisherville. I'm I want to listen on that more than I want to talk. So, yeah. Uh, and then, uh, since since we, we belong to a a faith that is based on the testament of Scripture and Building on that, the freedom of statements of the church, we can say yes or no for this one. Okay. Uh, are you an EFS person? That is, it's uh, with regards to the Lord Jesus Christ being uh, God, we hold that He is eternally uh, functionally subordinate to the Father. Oh, eternally functionally? Was, yeah. No, I do not hold that He's eternally functionally subordinate to the Father. No. In the incarnation. Yep. Hey, Wayne. So this is just us getting to know you guys. Yeah. And you mentioned that you guys were married for 18 years. Yes. Very untheological. But how did you guys meet? We met in the seventh grade, eighth grade. Are you sure it wasn't the seventh grade? <laughs> yeah, I will. Thank you, Christy. Yes. We met in the eighth grade when Laura's family moved from Michigan to Arkansas. This was in 1994. <laughs> Michigan had just beaten Arkansas in the Sweet 16 the year before in 1993. So we were in physical science class. We were in science class. 94. Uh, I don't know that you want to give her one. Um, and the first thing I said to her was, are you from Michigan? And she said, yes. And I was like, did you see Chris Webber play? And she was like, Chris Webber? And I was just like flabbergasted. Why would you not have seen Chris Weber play? Because Michigan had been in the championship game in 93. They lost to North Carolina when Weber called a timeout. They didn't have a timeout. Uh, so that's how we met. I think the second thing I said to her was, can I tell this story? Sure. Yeah. Uh, the second thing I said to her was also in science class. We got a test back, and I had made a better grade than her on the test. And I saw her test score, and I said, huh, I thought you were smart. <laughs> Here's, here's the, she never made less than an A on anything ever for the rest of middle school, high school, and college. 
And every time I'd be like, sweetheart, are you sure that this requires this level of effort? She'd be like, it's your fault. <laughs> we graduated high school in 99. Um, after high school, our friend groups kind of merged and um, we were at a Denny's on Shackelford Road in uh, Little Rock, Arkansas, sitting in one of those weird like multi-person booths that no one can get in and out of in a way that doesn't look awkward. And uh, we were just talking and um, I was like, she is really interesting and uh, she's great. And um, so we, yeah, and smart. And she doesn't, she doesn't put up with all of my stuff and she doesn't seem very impressed with me either. <laughs> it's plan. Um, and we started dating on September 11th, 1999. And we got married on June the 7th of 2003. Um, after my senior year, before her senior year. And yeah, anything else you would add? No. Nope. She's a gem, um, an absolute gem, and has been an incredible means of grace to me. Other than God's word, the clearest means of grace in my life is Laura. So. Hi, I'm Lynn Yeah, I think women should use their gifts to serve the life of the body in whatever ways that God has gifted them and the scriptures prescribe that they do so. I think the office of elder is reserved for qualified men. Um, but beyond that, I think women ought to serve in all of the ways that God has gifted them to serve. The body functions best when the whole body is working together. So I'm a complementarian by conviction. Um, but I want to start the conversation about men and women in the church, not with the list of all the things that women ought not to do, but rather start at the other end of that God gifts all of his members to serve in the life of the church. And we know that there are certain parameters in which that is expressed, right? The office of elders reserved for qualified men. It's not just reserved for men. It's reserved for qualified men, right? There's a difference there. And so I want every member to use their gifts to serve in a way that is unique to them and without which the church couldn't vitally function. My wife has a whole realm of ministry that she can do that I can't get to, right? Um, and I'm thankful for that. And so I wanna encourage all the members, regardless of their season in life, to use whatever gifts God's given them in accordance with the Bible to serve the church. Can I say neither? Yeah. Yeah, they do. And pigs smell bad. And they're bad at football too. Brother Jeff, thank you so much. It's, it's, I can speak for everybody here. It's been a joy and clarity with which you have answered questions um, that weren't prepared beforehand, but sort of came out of the conversation we've been able to have with you. Has been encouraging and um, I think further clarifying what the Lord is doing, which we've been aware of, uh, but it's been good. So yeah, praise it's God. It's a joy to be here with you. So. So glad you got to We look forward again anticipation to tomorrow. And, uh, and it's not just that we look forward to hearing you preach. 
I look forward to worshiping with you. Yeah, praise the Lord. Everyone is, is Praise the Lord. That, yeah, so. praise God. Amen. Mm-hmm.